The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Randy Hopper. West Point broke Randy of bad habits and forced him to create new ones. Through humility, a strong work ethic, and leaning on the strengths of those around him, Randy learned to overcome and succeed in the face of adversity. This is a great story of knowing yourself and how to steer a team towards success. Through the Gray has its first sponsor. Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to Through the Gray. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk to Randy Hopper. Morning, Randy. Morning. How are you, Joe? Excellent. So first question, why West Point? Um... So believe it or not, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but uh, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I can't remember, uh, my grandmother took my sister and I on a tour of Washington, D.C. And it was, a, it was a guided tour. It was about a week and a half long. And anyway, uh, one, one of the stops was Annapolis. And that was before then, I had, I had no idea uh, what a service academy was. Um, my my uh, my family. My, I had a I had a grandfather and his brother that were uh, fighter pilots uh, during. They served during the Korean War. My my great uncle, his brother, my grandfather's brother, uh, actually flew, you know, ten to twenty sorties over North Korea. Uh, but my grandfather was stationed in in Europe uh, during that time. But that was really my family's only uh, military service, and a lot of it was due to uh, the ages of 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 my dad's, uh, father and my dad, uh, my grandfather, uh, like I said, he was, it was after world war two. So he was in the Korean, uh, uh, time frame. but then my dad graduated from high school in 1972. So really, um, you know, he had a draft number, but it was pretty high. And so it's just the, the, the military service, the big military service times over the last hundred years really kind of just skipped, um, or my, my, my family's, you know, ages were, were, were sort of off. So I didn't have a lot of, of, of military, uh, family influence, but I, my whole life, I, as a kid, I was played with toy soldiers and that's all I did. I, I loved, loved hunting. And my, my father, uh, had me around firearms and, and was really instrumental in, in keeping me, you know, trained on firearm safety. And so I just, I love that that whole sort of state of mind, and and I I had was exposed to the to the military academy at Navy, and so anyway came back. I was I played lots of sports in high school, and start to you know about four years later start to think about where I'm going to apply to college, and um, I remember thinking, um, well, you know, what do you think about 
Annapolis. And I thought, you know, it may, may seem interesting. And, and uh, the Navy sent a recruiter, I forget what they call those guys, but a recruiter to my house and talked to me. And anyway, through all that process, I learned about West Point. And I applied there. I applied to Navy and I applied um, to some, some public schools here in, in, in Texas. And I generally got in. Um, and when the nomination came back and my package was approved and I'd, I was accepted, I, I thought, man, you know, this is a once in a lifetime experience. I don't think I'll ever forgive myself if I turn it down. And so I did. And as you know, once you show up at West Point, you can't quit. Uh, it's just, if you quit, you're the guy that couldn't hack it. So I just, uh, that's, that's how I got there is really kind of a roundabout way and not really something epic. It was just sort of uh, the way the cards fell for me. And so did you do a lot of preparation um, and, and know what you were going into when you walked into the academy? Well, so... <laughs> Um, I was, I was heavily involved. Uh, I'd played soccer. I played soccer in high school. Um, so as far as my physical prep, um, I was, I was prepped physically and I went and I visited, I did a, a soccer visit and I stayed with uh, two guys that were on the soccer team for the class of 2000. And I was lucky enough that that visit happened about six weeks before recognition that year. And so it wasn't like I visited and, and were with plebes. Those guys were plebes. Um, I visited with them, and they had not been recognized. So I had, I had heard all the things that you hear, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be mentally tough. But I was able to at least see it from maybe a, a, the cheap seats, if that makes sense. So I wasn't yeah. surprised at, at that. Um, but, you know, as you know, you know, until you're in it, you really don't realize how overwhelming it can be if 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 you're not ready to deal with it. So I don't know if that answers your question. Now, when you walk, no, that's perfect. Um, so when you walked into our day and and you get a first taste of of Beast Barracks and the initial training that summer, how did that go? Uh, it was rough. Um, but I, you know, I think back um to those rough times and some of these some of these guys that you had. That when you and I were talking, uh, that you had mentioned the names, you know, Ben McLaughlin was in my B squad, uh, Josh Noble, uh, and, and, and I, and I bring up their names because when I really, really experienced a deep, um, understanding of when things get real tough around you, your situation gets tough. The guys that are the guys and girls that are in it with you are really the, what, what keeps you afloat. I mean, that, and, and when I think about that, a lot of people ask me, you know, when they find out I've, I've gone to West Point, you know, was it tough? And you know, I've heard it sucks there, you know, and I said, yes, but I can tell you that the relationships that you build could probably get you through anything. And I think that was my first really deep lesson about West Point. So when that, I mean, I, I you know, we all struggle. You struggle dealing with the pressure. You struggle dealing with, you know, being told that you fail at life. <laughs> and fail at everything. Uh, but when you have other people going through it and you, and you sort of close ranks with each other, I found that that was my big, that was my first big lesson on how to, uh, get through hard times, how to, how to, how to make, how to accomplish hard tasks. So, and so you, you get through beast and you transition to the academic year. Um, and and the same thing you said is is you you move to it the academic company uh, G three the Gophers, um, yeah. how'd that go? Well, it went, it went great. We uh, it went it went great as far as um, you know Reorgi Week back then. I don't know if they even do that now, but Reorgi Week was was quite challenging. But we I I also experienced <clears throat> our classmates. I mean, you were there. Our classmates coming together, and you know when they when they stuck us in that room for laundry, and you know all those weeks and we yell that and as soon as you come out to deliver laundry it's shark attack you really realize man i've got you know 30 other people that are going through this with me and you you be you those friendships are forged in that that it's it's their lifetime so that went well uh academic year i struggled my first my i struggled my second semester in academic year uh i failed um uh, failed uh DD, was it DDS? I can't remember. Yeah. Discrete dynamical yeah. systems. Yes, yeah, that 
that that class. I failed that class, went to SAP. Um, so I, I did struggle. My plebe year was probably my biggest academic struggle. Um, I, I know for some, it, 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 or for most, I've heard that it was sophomore year. I actually felt like I excelled sophomore year, but I, I think that was a function of me just getting my, you know, sorry to be crass, but getting my ass whipped on, um, on academics in my, in my, my plebe year that I, uh, my, my yuck year seemed a little more manageable and I actually had my highest GPA was mine, so. I think it was one the, a bit of a factor was um, West Point had to break you to force you to learn new habits uh, and break the habits that, that worked in high school, whether it was academically, whether it was physically, whether it was leadership wise. And we all hit that breaking point at a different time. That's right. I, I totally. And um, I, I think that's another great lesson that I learned at West Point early on. I think, I think we all learn it, but you know, for me, that's when the penny dropped on this is um, that, look, you know, you, 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 we each have the ability to get it done, but you're not special and you got to be humble and other people see things in, in different perspectives. And that can, that can be an asset to you if you're humble enough to listen and ask and be inquisitive. And <clears throat> I think we'll talk about that later as I transition out of, out of army life and into <clears throat> into you know what I do now, but that has been a great asset in my uh, to just to say, look, when I walk in the room, I I'm the dumbest person in this room, and I'm going to try to figure out how to learn as much as I can. And I think that when when you approach life that way, for me, it's been a it's been it's been a, a, a great asset. And then also, you know, I've watched I've watched our some of our classmates do that very same thing and become very successful at what they do. And so I think, I think learning that early on, getting, 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 not necessarily your spirit, but getting your, your, your pride um, and some of your bad habits broken down and shown to you like, Hey, you know, Hopper, this is a, this is a problem and you don't do this well. And I think when you, if you can receive that message, it can, it can transform your life. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that was that was part of it. And I think I that plebe year <clears throat> was was one of those milestones for me where, OK, I, I realized that I, I brought a lot of personal baggage um, as, as far as the way I conduct myself, the way I accomplish tasks, the way I learn. And a lot of this has got to get out of here. And so I think, um, yeah, for, for me, it was a ride around that second semester where I, I, I started really learning my, my academic habits um, of just memorizing and group memory was not going to be enough, that I had to take better notes, that I had to be more deliberate, uh, and I couldn't wait to the last minute to make something happen. Couldn't pull it out of the hat. That's right. And and what I, what I learned, too, is that those, you know, your professors and then also your classmates, I mean, you know, <clears throat> they see right through that BS, and you've got to decide, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to half-ass this. I'm going to, I'm going to spend the extra, extra time to do it. And what you learn is, is that when you come out on the other side of that, the feeling is so much better that it's sort of like, sort of like being physically active. You know, uh, when you're up at five, taking that first step to get to the gym or to go run or whatever you do is the worst. But that last step when you're complete is always the best. And so it was the same way for me academically. Once I realized, hey, the feeling on the other end of of, of accomplishment, of of that I worked hard and I and I you know got a great grade or at least not a failing grade, that's better than avoiding doing it. So I don't know if that is clear enough, but that's that's kind of the what I've the way I kind of explain it. So so West Point's kind of a place of highs and lows. What was your your biggest high and your biggest low? Uh, my biggest low was probably stap. <laughs> I was a stap ranger, uh, uh, yuck year. So, uh, I didn't see home for a while because, um, you know, we were, we were done with, with school and, um, and I went straight into stap. And then I think I had a weekend before Buckner started and, um, uh, Alex Young and I went up to, to the beach in, uh, Long Island that weekend. And that was it. That was, that was the, that was the sum total of my vacation. So I went from plebe year, had a two day weekend beach trip, and then went straight into Buckner. 
And so that was probably my lowest time, um, just going through staff, um, you know, and you, you know this. So when, when you're, when you're struggling grade wise and it's plebe year, you're like, man, the class is only going to get harder. And I've got three more years of this. I, you know, I don't know if I can continue, you know, this marathon. And so I think that was, that was probably weighing on me mentally. Um, I think I was, I was kind of struggling with that. Like, Oh, okay. I can get through this. I can get through the stat thing, but man, can I, can I keep up this pace for, for three more years? And so I think I struggled there, but, um, you know, Buckner came along and our classmates came back and I had success at Buckner, um, you know, and that was always, it's, it's both fun and a suck at the same time. So, um, but I enjoyed that. And I think walking into, to yuck year that after that, and, you know, you're going to be a team leader and you're going to get some leadership under your belt. And I really kind of had a, a breath of fresh air into it. And then I started experiencing because those habits had been changed or broken and then changed. Um, you know, I started experiencing some success in the academic side and I, that really kind of came out. So, you know, I'd say staff was my lowest point. Um, my highest point was probably <laughs> grad week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and somebody asked me, in fact, I was at, I was entertaining some clients and, uh, uh, our, our contracts attorney was here, was with us and he had, he had recently found out where, where I'd, we'd, I'd gone to school and he asked me, he said, well, how, what was that like? And I said, well, it was a great place to be from, but it's not a great place to be. And, um, I think, I think that's what I realized that, at, at that was my mindset at, at, um, at grad week. I was, I was glad it was over. I had done it. Um, I, of course I was, I think I was a goat. I mean, I'm right in the middle. I'm, I'm either two or three people away from either being a goat or an engineer. I can't remember. So I'm either, I'm either the dumbest engineer or the smartest goat. I, I don't know. But, um, I had, uh, that was my mindset coming out of West Point. I just, I was, I was ready for that to be done. I was ready to go into the army and serve. And, you know, you all, you, you know, this, I think, I think your introduction, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and getting ready for this. And your introduction says, you know, we grad week was 101 or 102 days before the whole world changed. And so it was just a different world we lived in back. Anyway, that those are my high and lows at West Point. So when when did you decide what branch and what post that you were going to go to and what sure. influenced that? Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's it's real basic. You know, it's real basic. It's not anything spe- uh, spectacular. But so, again, this was prior to 9-11, prior to the war in Iraq, which was heavily urban, um, you know, this prior to the the heavy, or I shouldn't say heavy, but the 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 wide use of light infantry in, in Afghanistan, and so at my time at West Point, um, I'll just be blunt: the guys that were that promoted the infantry and the guys that were the our infantry officers, I just in my mind that was a different mindset. That wasn't me, and I, I wasn't going to be anywhere around that. So. <laughs> On branch, and I remember remember branch selection. We had to uh, pull up the website on our computers and select branches. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah. So I opened that website and I went down because there was eighteen branches at the time that select. I went down to number eighteen. My first act was I went down to number eighteen and I put in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. And uh, mainly because I, I was like, I'm not going to Ranger School. That's BS. I, I'm not into that. And so um, I kind of started choosing my branches from there. But, and I'll, I'll pause that story to tell you that I was, when I did CTLT, I, I did CTLT with an MP platoon at Fort Hood. And uh, my major was in the behavioral sciences and leadership. And I had a, uh, I had a, I had a professor, one of the senior professors there uh, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Shook, I think his first name was Roger. I can't remember. And Roger had mentored me, Lieutenant Colonel Shook had mentored me a little bit there. Um, he was in one of my capstone, he was my capstone professor at one of my classes and there at the uh, BA. And he was an engineer officer. He was an engineer. And when I said that, he, he kind of paused and he goes, Hopper, you need to see me after class, like real stern. Uh, yes, sir. You know? And his, his office was, I can't remember. I thought it was sort of in Taylor Hall because of his relationship with the soup. I can't remember. Anyway, so I go, I go to his office after my next class, I report. And he's like, why the F 
are you branching MP? And I told him, I'd also told him I was thinking about, uh, thinking about quartermaster. And he goes, I'll never forget. It. He goes, you can be a cop or a truck driver for the rest of your life. Why don't you do something in the army that you'll never get to be able to get, get to do again? And then, so that I had that. And then I had my, my, some close friends, uh, who did the CTLT with, with armor and to be quite clear, uh, there was a almost 100% chance that I wouldn't have to go to ranger school if I branched armor and I could still be combat arms. And so that's what I picked. And that was my number one choice. And I was, I was a dumb enough engineer, smart enough goat that there was still an armor slot left for me. So I, that's what I did. It was, and it then was post wise. Yeah. Fort Hood's kind of a no brainer for a Texas kid. It is, um, you know, Fort has changed. I, um, my, my first tank platoon sergeant, um, he and I are still very close friends. In fact, we were texting yesterday. Uh, I'm trying to get up to Fort Hood and see him. Uh, he's a sergeant major at one of the armies. I, I don't know. But um, he, uh, you know, so I was thinking, I was talking to him, and we were talking about how Fort Hood has changed for the worse, um, and, and, or really, you know, uh, Colleen. But um, it was a different world back then. It, you know, it was the big army. You know, you there were two divisions there, 4ID and 1st Cav. It was America's Hammer, and it, there was just a lot going on. It was it was a a lot. I I kind of equated it was a lot like Fort Bragg, just on the heavy, right? Right. So when you when you showed up at Fort Hood, you I mean you saw military vehicles moving. You know there was like ten thousand civilians worked on Fort Hood. It, I mean it was just a happening place. You, it, it wasn't like when you, we were at the schoolhouse for Officer Basic, where it just kind of felt like a, a small town and just this kind of sleepy army post. This this thing was moving. And so I really, I saw that early on when I picked my branches. I knew that Fort Hood was a place that, you know, I'd get to see the army. I get to see the army as it's supposed to be seen. And so that's, that's one reason. Um, and then two, I, I was going back to Texas. All the things I like to do, all my I love all of the things that I love for hobbies and fishing and hunting and being in the river. Um, the, you know, there's no, not a lot of snow here, which is one of my favorites. Those were all attractive to me to come back to Texas. And so that's what I did. Um, that, so that's why I picked Fort Hood. And, and as you can imagine, there were a lot of armor slots for Fort Hood, uh, right. quite, quite a bit, which <laughs> is ironic. Well, I don't know if you want to move to my army time, but I showed up at Fort Hood in November of 2001, and um, I walked into, for, I was in 1st Brigade, and I walked into 1st Brigade S1, and I'll never forget him, Major Robinson, he was a gigantic man, played Army football, and he had, you know, so I salute, and he you know, tells me at ease, and so I'm standing there, and he walks over on his, on his board, and he's got a giant whiteboard, and on the whiteboard, he's got every platoon broken down. All the all the, the the whole brigade with all the battalions all the way down to and I, he looks at me and he's like Lieutenant Hopper you see these he goes I said yes sir he goes those are our platoons and he walks over he goes here's the tank uh, the tank platoons and he points to them he goes what do you notice about all these platoons I said well they've all got a name beside them and he said that's right and then he walks over to the the mechanized infantry battalion shows all the platoons and it's got it's like half full of platoon and he says what do you what do you see about these platoons? And I said, well, you only got about half of the names full there. He said, that's right, Lieutenant Hopper, and that's what you're going to be for the first six months until the tank platoon opens up. So I was a, I was a mechanized infantry platoon leader, my first platoon, and uh, actually deployed to NTC uh, in er, uh, early 2000, uh, in February of 2022. I was a butter bar lieutenant, took my platoon to NTC, which was a mechanized infantry platoon. So even though I was armored. So long story short, putting infantry at number 18 of your branch choices is not going to keep you out of being an infantry platoon. <laughs> it's going to find you, man. Uh, I was talking to Kyle Barden about that in our last interview. And it's the same thing. It's like he went F.A. to try to de decrease the amount of time he did walking. And then he went yeah, to Vicenza yeah. Italy at 173rd. And he did a crap ton of walking. <laughs> yeah. One of the things about armor, one of the guys was like, man, you can take dumbbells and put them on the tank. Nobody cares. I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> so, I have to walk with those. <laughs> and so, talk me through the 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 prep and the road to uh, Iraq. Yeah, that 
that was interesting. Um, so my uh, this was, you know, September 11th had happened. We were my battalion. Um, we my battalion sent sent platoons. My platoon didn't go. Sent two platoons on two different rotations to help stand up Gitmo uh, back then. As crazy as that sounds. And so that was really my first sort of secondhand exposure to the war on terror. I mean, it had happened. We were training in the army, but that was a real world world mission that my battalion was running was they were sending platoons to basically act as beefed up security for the the governmental agencies flying in and transferring these detainees from the planes to the prison facility. So that was just watching watching that happen, we us preparing for it was my first taste of, oh my gosh, getting ready to go go somewhere and do what we've been training. And <clears throat> about that time, I'd say probably March, it was right after I was back from NTC. So March of 2022 or April 2022, I, uh, the platoon that I was taking uh, was opening up. The lieutenant was, was on his way out to uh, uh, the captain's course and he was done. And so I was, and, and the, the tank company that I was going to, Charlie Company, uh, 1st Battalion 66 Armor, which was in 1st um, Brigade of, of 4ID, they were going through gunnery. So I was, I convinced my battalion commander when we were in red phase, which was because we were coming out of NTC, he let me go out to gunnery and just basically hang out with my soon-to-be tank platoon and watch them do gunnery. And so that's what I did. And we finished, they finished gunnery. I officially took over the platoon. Um, the, they had a, they had an outgoing platoon sergeant. Um, so he was my platoon sergeant for about, uh, seven weeks. And then Bill Justice, my, my, my good, good friend came in and, um, he was, he was a, a drill sergeant coming off the trail. And we were, I was his, I was, he was my first platoon, uh, platoon sergeant as a tank platoon. And he was, and I was his first lieutenant and we just hit it off. And mainly that was because he and I sat down and we talked about how we wanted to run the platoon. And to be quite candid, I told him it's your platoon and I'm going to get the hell out of the way when you need me to get the hell out of the way. And we just really clicked. And I think early on, I figured out that my job is much different from his and the, the senior NCOs, him, and then my two, uh, uh, section leaders there, the two E6s that I had, they know more about the army than I'll ever know. And what I think what really helped me get there was I, I realized that their expertise and their leadership, especially when it comes to the soldiers and understanding those tanks is not a threat to me. Those, those, that's not my job. My job is to use that platoon to implement the commander's task and purpose. And when I realized that and, and, and Bill Justice realized that I knew that we had a very, very close, strong relationship. And um, anyway, that was that was the beginning of the road to Iraq. We, we started training and all of a sudden we started having some meetings where they were they were classified and we were seeing maps that were classified of certain areas of the globe. And we were looking at river crossings, potential river crossings, et cetera, et cetera. And it got real, sort of real with me. And, and um, my, the next step was my commander uh, tasked me as the unit movement officer, which is the worst ever. But <laughs> I did it, and it was awesome. We ended up doing it. But we, we loaded up the gear uh, in early February of 2003. Uh, on the railhead, went down to the port in Beaumont, put it on the ships, and uh, we thought, here we go. And then, as we talked about earlier, um, you know, Condoleezza Rice was, um, at the time, she was Secretary uh, uh, of State, and she was negotiating with, with Turkey for us to send a division, which was our division, the 4th ID, uh, south from Turkey and, and invade Iraq from the north at the same time. 3ID and, and the 3rd ACR and the Marines were invading from the south from Kuwait. And so our, our equipment literally kind of doing circles in the Mediterranean waiting on where we were going to go, whether we we're going to go through the Suez Canal and down to Kuwait or whether we we're going to embark at Turkey. And I can tell you that as unit movement officer, those, those decals that I put on every vehicle and every quad con and every container 
had a city in Turkey on it. That's where it was going. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately we couldn't we couldn't win that that diplomatic you know challenge. And so Turkey said no. And so our equipment was diverted to uh, Kuwait to the Suez Canal, and the invasion kicked off from the south without four ID. And um, that was really the road. Uh, I flew into I think the first day of April or the last day of March. My company flew in, or yeah, my company flew into uh, into Kuwait and uh, got our equipment the next five hours off the boat, and we were there. So, and talk me through um, the movement. I mean, you went from the southern edge of Iraq all the way up to Baghdad and beyond. Talk me through that. We did. So, uh, it was real, it was really like something out of a movie. It was, it was eerie. Um, we, uh, I tell a lot of people this, but we were at camp Pennsylvania. It was after that whole grenade incident. You remember that? Yeah. With one Oh first. So people, yeah. So people were just, we're still talking about all the civilian contractors were still talking about it. And so we, we'd gotten to camp Pennsylvania with our, with our vehicles and equipment, um, about, I'd say, 24 hours after I landed in the plane. And so we were there. Um, and maybe 10 hours later, it was, it was in the afternoon. Commander said, Hey, get your platoon together. You're going to go, uh, you're going to go ammo up basically. And so we went out to this, uh, what I call a container city. So it was outside the Camp Pennsylvania gate and it was a bunch of containers and it was, you drove between them. And we had, uh, there were, there were uh, E six E sixes from the support battalion there at every container, and we pulled up, and I had my sheet, so I was kind of walking in front of the tanks, and I had my sheet of my my loadout, my ammo loadout. I'll never forget every one of those E sixes. I'd show up, and you know, on a tank, he'd be like, "All right, sir, you got you got fifty fifty to sixty thousand rounds of linked seven six two per tank." And I'd look, and I'd say, "Yep, yeah, that's right." He goes, he'd go. Well, I, I need you to take like 150 per tank. <laughs> uh, okay. So, I mean, we just, we were overflowing. I mean, the AT4s. Yeah. So you, you got, you got one AT4 per tank on your loadout. Yep. That's right. Can you take four per tank? Sure. It was like, it was like that at every station and we were just overflowing with ammo. It was crazy. When we, when we got to, uh, we got to Baghdad, there were several times where there were platoons from the 101st were like asked us if we had linked 762 for the two, for their 240s we were like we got all the links you need we were handing yeah. out linked 762 to the infantry platoons it was great but yeah uh i remember we, from our standpoint um when we were loading up our tanks and just like you said you could always bring like extra barbells or extra this um it was the first time that you've actually loaded the tank with a, a battle load um a combat load of ammunition and we were like, where do we put our A bags? Where do we put our B bags? Because the ammo, the bustle rack was full of ammo. And we were strapping extra containers to the side of the tank to carry more ammo. Yeah, there was just, we were taking links out of the, the, the links out of the can and laying them flat in the sponsor. We were just trying to find room for it. Yeah. So it, it was just crazy. And all the, AR, so we, all the information we were getting back from third ideas whatever amount of ammunition you have it's not enough bring more yeah oh yeah totally all right sorry to interrupt man i mean no 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 that was it and so we we loaded up and we we put uh the tanks on a het on hets heavy equipment transport and we rolled through the berm in a convoy on hets into iraq and i'll never forget it um <laughs> it was we rolled through at night and we were on that we were just across the desert, just using GPS and a map across the desert and um, maybe dirt roads at times, but we ended up hitting Highway 1. And of course, you know, that was something out of the news, right? Just vehicles everywhere, um, just bombed out, not not a living thing in sight and just desert as far as you can see. And so we, I was, I was in the lead Humvee and we had a, one of my, one of the, uh, the headquarter platoon in the uh, in uh, in the company, uh, or basically our our mic operator was driving. I was shotgun, and our uh, our our Fister uh, lieutenant from University of Alabama. I forget his name. He was sitting behind the driver, 
And so we're driving and the sun's just starting to come up and I kind of like look over and I'm the only one awake in the Humvee and we're doing 45 miles an hour with 40, 50 vehicles behind. And I realized this kid's sleeping and I don't know how long he's been because I had kind of dope. And we're going down Highway 1, but of course there's no lane, right? You're, just, you're the only vehicle on the road except for the bombed out stuff to the side. And so then I look back and my fister kind of wakes up and he looks at me and he goes, just let the kids sleep, man. So I reach over and hold the wheel for probably 25 minutes while this kid sleeps. Wow. Driving. The, yeah. So we, that was, we caught, we drove and hit several fueling checkpoints and got to the south of, of the south side of Baghdad um, in, that night as, as, as the sun set. And I'll never forget trying to catch up with these, with the, with the, 101st checkpoints in the middle of bombed out Baghdad. There was one underneath this overpass. It was an overpass. And, you know, you come up on it, get off the tank, and you know, do the challenge and challenge and password. And like, oh my God, I'm if I get this wrong, these guys may shoot me. And it was just really eerie. It was dark. And sure enough, though, we made it through the checkpoints. And about about the middle of Baghdad, we went into combat formation and started moving. Um, our uh, our our battalion, so uh, Alpha Company and maybe Elements of Bravo Company. I was in Charlie Company. Alpha and Elements of Bravo Company took the Taji Airfield. Um, that that was the unit that took the Taji Airfield, and that happened the next morning. Mm-hmm. And we we never stopped moving from that point. We literally never stopped moving until we were about 600 kilometers, 700 kilometers to the north of um, in the city of Mosul. So we went through Taji. Samara to Crit, and then uh, Balad ultimately um, uh, ended in Mosul, and it was the Mosul was a was a sight to see because it was Saddam's birthday, and um, and it was just you know gunfire and tracers all night. It looked like fireworks. It looked like Fourth of July, and um, that was the night the last Iraqi unit capitulated, and we we set up that air base there on the Mosul airfield. Uh, the Marines had had. Uh, the Marines were there uh, and secured the airfield, and so then we relieved. And that was that was my first two weeks in in Iraq, and then it extends. and And what was the remainder of your time in Iraq like? Sure. So uh, when we when we went to Mosul, we were we were fighting with the hundred and first, and so after after Mosul was officially has you know officially fallen. Um, and it was in coalition hands. Um, we started, you, you started to see that the, the, the military, the State Department started dividing Iraq into sectors. And so 101st got the northern sector. And uh, 4ID was centered uh, around Tikrit. That's where the 4ID headquarters was. My battalion, my, my, my mother battalion, uh, 166, was in Samara. Uh, but when they had done that and the battalions and the, the units started, you know, taking over their AOs, the 101st asked for heavy armor support. And so my company, Charlie Company 166, was cross-attached to the 101st. And in fact, um, so we, we were heavy armor support for the 101st, um, and we were at the uh, their LSA underneath. So my company commander at the time answered to the assistant G3. So um, we were sort of like a, a division asset of tanks, if you can imagine that. It was kind of weird. And so we, we did about six months in Mosul, and it was fairly quiet. Um, you know, we had, we were there for the, for the capturing and killing of, of the Hussein brothers, uh, Saddam's sons. And um, but it was it was fairly quiet, mainly because at that time Mosul was pretty eclectic. There was a high, there was a heavy Christian population. A lot of a lot of Kurds were there, and so you you didn't see some of the stuff you saw in in Fallujah or even you know Sadr City or uh, Tikrit to a degree. And then after that, we we moved back down to Samara and finished finished. Uh, Finished my tour there in Samara, and then ultimately back to Kuwait. So that was that was really that was really our time in Iraq. Now, what I saw in the summer of of two thousand three, I I 
I personally witnessed that momentum shift for when uh, the insurgency sort of took hold and the IED started. And really, I, I, this is my own personal opinion, but I blame that on the United States and the State Department, the way uh, the Department of Defense wanted to keep our footprint light there. Uh, the Iraqi people, I, the, the Iraqi people that I I interacted with, this is how they saw the situation. We we had we had taken down the the country and the military forces so quickly, and here we were, big bad Americans, but we didn't have we didn't have the capabilities on site to get get them running water back up, to get their power situation done, to give them some some semblance of security. And in their in the Iraqis' mind, I think this is a cultural thing, but that that meant weakness, and that opened the door for an insurgency to step in. When we couldn't provide basic services and basic security because of because of the way we designed our footprint and how we were going to try to fight this war, uh, we opened the door and allowed a vacuum for the insurgency to step in. And that was the central message that I saw was the of the insurgency was the Americans can't protect you. The Americans cannot fix this country. You need to join us, and we're going to get them out of here. And that's really what, um, in, in summer of 03, that's when you saw the IEDs kick up. I mean, uh, until then, we were, I was in Humvees with no doors riding around. I mean, I think about it now, I think, God, was I crazy? I don't know. But then the IEDs started, and we started getting the up-armor Humvees, and just a whole different war, a whole different fight. And so what? As you were rotating out of Iraq, uh, turning your equipment back in, what was going on in your head going back to the States? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I thought about this a lot. I, at the time, I was 20, I was 25. Yeah, I was 25. Young. I, in my mind, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't married, didn't have children. I was going back to the States. We had, we had you know, done our duty and going back to the Army and see what's next for me in the Army. Uh, I didn't know whether or not you know, at the time we were still pretty optimistic about what was going to happen in Iraq, but this was, this was early, you know, the first or second quarter of, of 2004. Um, but getting back to see the, see my family and see home and sort of recuperate after, after being in a, in a combat zone for a year. Um, I had to, I definitely had to get my, uh, my physical fitness back into, into shape. I mean, you know, that, you know, you, you do stuff at nights so during the day, just kind of sleeping and laying around all the time over there. So, And so um, you're done being a tank platoon leader. You've been a mechanized infantry platoon leader. Um, you redeploy as an XO? Correct. I was, I had taken the XO job about five months into deployment. I, I And it's weird because I went from a, a tank platoon leader in Charlie Company to Charlie Company's XO. Uh, looking back on that, I'd probably say I probably should have, asked the battalion commander to take a different company um, because I had, there was some, uh, from a leadership standpoint in the minds of the soldiers in the, in the unit. Um, and it, it was, it ended up being fine, but it was definitely an extra hurdle that I had to get over to, to show I was first platoon leader. So to show second and third platoon that I wasn't, I didn't favor my original soldiers. Um, uh, that that was a that was a very very uh, palpable hurdle for me to get over in the unit, and I don't think I would have had to spend you know time and energy on that had I gone to a, another unit in the battalion. And then as you you come back and you you're moving towards a, a junior captain, right? You're getting uh, pretty long in the tooth for first lieutenant. I am. I, in fact, I um, we came back and that summer right after a field problem. I was at the wash rack with the, with the company and the battalion commander showed up out there and it's like, Hey, congratulations. You're on the, on the, uh, captain list. And we're going to pin you next week. So it was that summer. And so, yes. Yeah, so, <clears throat> um, I had taken the XO job. I finished out, um, in Iraq, came, came back. And right as I was about to pin on captain, either right before the battalion commander told me that or right after he put me in the scout platoon leader job. So I was a scout platoon leader um, for about eight months and then, um, got, but it was all at Fort Hood. You know, we, we, we deployed, we did field problems. Um, but it was sort of coming back from Iraq, getting sort of thinking about the next rotation in 18 months or whatever. And, and after about eight months in the scout platoon leader, the, you know, 
my, my leaders, battalion commander, company commander said, hey, you know, you want to do the captain's career course? What are you thinking? And that's what I did. So I went to, uh, I went to the captain's career course and um, finished that. And the Army was running a, a pro, what I thought was a program, at least the way they pitched it to me. This was, this was late 04, early 05. Yeah, early 05. So when I went to the captain's career course, my entire group, not my small group, but my entire class, I think there were two of us with combat patches. Wow. And, you know, I was talking with our class, our classmate, Brian Frizzell. Even that, I mean, that was just a different world. There, there were two of us that had, that had been deployed in a combat zone out of, out of all of us. I mean, it was just crazy. So the Army presented this, this program. What they did was they said, look, here's what we're going to do. We need to get more of you, Mister Got a Combat Patch, um, into the Tradoc billets, right? Mm-hmm. And so the program they presented to me was: what we're going to do is we're going to give you two sets of orders. You're going to be a company command. You're going to you're going to you're going to graduate um, captain's career course. You're going to immediately take a Tradoc company command, and then you're going to have follow-on orders to a unit. At which point you will go into that units. When you get there, you'll go into the queue, and you won't your your group won't get pushed back. You'll go into the queue, and you'll get a you'll get your command at a line company. And we're going to make that attractive because that's attractive to you because one, we're kind of almost guaranteeing you two commands. Two, it may it's probably going to short circuit any of the junior junior captain staff time that you're going to do at a battalion somewhere on the line. So I signed up for that. And uh, I literally graduated. Uh, I, I was I had gotten married during the captain's course, and I graduated the captain's course that morning. Had the reception with the captain's course, and that afternoon, my 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 uh, my wife and my mom had flown up to help. My wife had put together the reception for my change of command ceremony that afternoon. Wow! It was all the same day. I I, I literally took command the same day I graduated the captain's course, and so. I took command of a basic training company and did that um, through um, through the fall of 2006, and that's when the, they said, "What are you going to do?" And um, we just uh, we wife and I at the time we just decided that we'd had enough. I'd done my commitment, and so um, we decided to get out. I got out in uh, November of 2006, but the the basic training company command was was. An eye-opening time. That was a really, that was a really rewarding um, job. Um, gives me, it gave me a new sort of sort of view on the individuals that go into the military and enlist, and what some of you know some of the things I learned about why people enlist, and you know, because the army was doing studies trying to figure that out. Why are why are certain people enlisting? Why, are, right? So the the army was spending a lot of money on. Um, on what trying to understand why people were enlisting to get you know to make sure recruiting numbers were happening during this time and so that was really eye-opening to me to watch to watch that and understand why people from different parts of the country different demographics uh different you know ethnic backgrounds different experiences why they re-enlist and how that translated and what they did in the army it's really really fascinating anyway so that was a that was a great experience for me. The, the, I loved working with drill sergeants. You know, when you're a basic training company commander, you got to, you have an XO, but you have uh, a first sergeant and a set of, of drill sergeants. And it was, it was awesome. So talk me through the, the decision to uh, get out and then uh, what, it, what do you want to do after you get out? Sure. Uh, my, uh, my family, um, what my, my grandfather's really both my grandfathers uh, were were involved in, in commercial real estate uh, my whole life. I kind of grew up around it. And when I when I decided to get out, my family did not have a company, and they weren't you know they'd all retired. But I it, that was the that was the business I knew and I understood. And so I got out for simple reasons. I, it was I I just I was recently married. I wanted to start a family, and this was. Late 06, the wars were hot. The surge hadn't happened yet, so we weren't experiencing success in in, in Iraq. And um, I thought, you know what? I've done my I've done my service. It's time to get out. And so that's really what what prompted it. Is pretty simple. I, 
I had done what I needed to do, and I wanted to get involved in commercial real estate. I wanted to go back to, to Houston um, and raise my family. And so that's that's really what prompted my decision to get out of the Army after my, my commitment was up. And so you get out and you join um, the Weitzman Group. How did that happen? Sure. So uh, uh, the Weitzman Group was founded by an icon in the real estate business, a guy named Herb Weitzman. He's out of Dallas. And uh, Herb had uh, Herb has uh, four offices, and by by pure choice and and um, and decision on Herb's part, Herb does not really do any retail development re- or, or or real estate development outside of the state of Texas. He grew up in Dallas. He's a, he's a Longhorn, and he's just he just likes doing business in Texas, and he's done extremely well. He's He's developed, he's a general partner in over 300 shopping centers around the state and done extremely well and got into the, into the retail uh, real estate world uh, in the 60s and really sort of became an icon. And when I say uh, retail real estate, so think shopping centers, um, development of, of, of grocery stores, negotiating leases for, for big tenants like Target and Best Buy, Ross, TJ Maxx. All the way down to individual nail salons or a or a Chipotle or whatever Starbucks. So that's what I did. I I, I went to work for him as sort of a negotiator. I was a broker, a commercial real estate broker. But going back to Herb's four offices, he has his flagship offices in Dallas. Is where he sits. He has an office in in Austin, an office in San Antonio, and an office in Houston. And the in each of those offices, he has a development partner that. That is on the on the 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 construction debt guarantee with him, uh, and that helps develop out his centers in these cities. And the development partner in Houston for for Herb graduated high school with my mother, and so that got that got me the interview. And um, I interviewed with him, and I went to work um, in Herb's Houston office as basically a, a small paid intern, and I learned the business. Um, it was a struggle. I, my family moved back to uh, to my hometown to be close to my mom while I was sort of cutting my teeth on on the real estate world. And I did that paid internship for about six months, and then I started moving into the brokerage where I went 100% commission. So I was I just shifted into a new career and uh, out of the army, and I was being I was paid on what you eat is what you kill. And so I started uh, negotiating leases. I would, I was project leasing for Herb. What that means is he would have a shopping center. We develop a Kroger, right? Let's say, for example, and then there would be shop, small shop space attached to the Kroger, and there would be pad sites outside. And so those pad sites, you'll see a, a fast food restaurant or a Chick Fil A or a Waterburger, whatever. And then in in line, in the space in line, you'd see the in line spaces. You know, sometimes there's a Subway, nail salon. Um, a UPS store, whatever you have it. And then they're all anchored by the Kroger. And so I started doing that. I, I was negotiating those leases, negotiating the, the purchase of the land, all up and down that development sort of timeline. And I really learned the development business. I learned, and I learned the market, um, understanding why people shop the way they do. Um, and that was, that, that was true insight for me. And and understanding the business. And so that's what I did. I did that for 10 years um, actively. And then about at about 2008, 2009, I, um, I found a piece of land where I knew the landowner. So I negotiated and convinced the landowner to put the land into a development partnership. So instead of me buying their land, I put it, they, they contributed their land to the partnership, but in, in return, they got a huge share and ownership of the partnership, right? And I developed that um, 13 acres into my first multifamily uh, uh, apartment development. I, I, I developed 204 units on 13 acres. And um, I started construction on that deal in um, June of 2009. And I know you had asked me earlier about, you know, the the change in the market and from 07 to 08, that was a huge, huge, um, that was a huge sort of hurdle for me because I'd gotten out of the army uh, right as that whole you know, financial crisis meltdown was just kicking off. And 
so my first deal I did was a uh, what we call a 221d4 and what that means is it's a it's under you underwrite it with the 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 HUD or the Federal Housing of Urban Development uh, but you go out to the market and you get a market loan so it's not subsidized rent it's it's market rate deal but because you've underwritten it with that office with the local HUD office you can use that underwriting to get favorable finance because the way the market looks at it, these banks, they say, oh, well, the HUD office underwrote it. So it must be really, really well underwritten. And if the HUD office said, said this is a great project, then we'll, we'll do it. So you get favorable financing. But the funny thing is, is that in, when I was setting that financing up in late 2008, if I hadn't done it that way, there was no banks giving loans, especially to me. I didn't, I didn't have the balance sheet. I couldn't get it done. But um, they approved it. And so what that did for me is I got favorable financing. And one of the things about that is I, I didn't have to raise as much equity. So putting the capital stack together for that development was a lot easier, especially for someone who didn't have the balance sheet or the, or the, or the money, quite frankly, to get that off the ground. So typically on a development, you know, let's say you do a, let's, let's go for easy math. So you do a uh, a $50 million total development, you're going to get 70% loan maximum. So that means that you're going to get a loan at $35 million, but you have to raise the additional $15 million. That has to be equity. Somebody's got to write a check. Usually, if you don't have it and you bring in an equity partner, they write a check, they get to be a limited partner, but they get a big lion's share of the deal. Well, in 2008, when the only loan anybody could get was a, was a HUD loan, the HUD loans are leveraged not at 70%, but they're at 80, 85%. So now I'm, instead of having to, instead of giving a, a $35 million lo uh, loan and then having to raise $15 million, I'm getting a 40 to $42 million loan and raising less than 10. Then I get to say, well, part of this is we don't have to capitalize the land. I don't have to buy the land. So I don't have to come up with cash to buy the land in the capital sector. The land is in. So therefore, if the land is worth six million and I only have to raise seven and a half, now now I'm down to actually raising a million and a half in cash. And that re I say all that to say, I know that's technical, but I say all that to say that that wouldn't have happened if the financial crisis hadn't happened when it happened and I hadn't got out of the army. When and so I was sounds, I found a it sounds a lot like well, um like that first year at West Point. Like if you'd that's right. If you would have cruised in that first year. You wouldn't have learned the hard lessons that set you up for success later. That's and right. it sounds like and, coming and, in and behind, helped you because you had to learn. It, it helped the, the, Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. It did. And well, no. And, and just to further your point so that it, it's not only there is a parallel, but also here I am. I, I got no money. I got um, I, I have some connections in the business because my family had been involved with so, so much, but they don't have a company. It's not like I have I can go to my family's company and let's develop it through you guys. I just, I just have a Rolodex of people that I'm calling. And I've, I've found that, um, there was, there's, a, there's a couple of guys here in town that helped me with my developments, um, senior partners. And I found that that lesson at West Point, being humble, understanding that you're not the smartest guy in the room. You're, you're probably the dumbest guy in the room. You don't know how this is. These guys have seen it, done it and heard it. I had success with that when I, when I met my first platoon sergeant and coming in and knowing that saying, Hey, I I'm willing to learn. Tell me how I do this. Now in, in my world, you have to be careful because some guys, if you, if you, if you get with the wrong individuals, they'll try to, you know, take the deal from you or, or, or make it where they have the lion's share of the deal. So I had to be smart about that, but I also had to recognize that, look, I don't know what I'm doing and I need to do two things simultaneously as fast as I can. And that's one, get my learning curve as vertical as possible. Learn, learn, learn. And I can talk about how I did that. And then two is, is be humble and recognize that if you really want to learn that fast, you have got to get your own, yourself out of the way. You've got to get yourself out of the way when you're having a discussion. You've got to get yourself out of the way when you're in the room with people that are negotiating with you. You, you. You've got to you've got to remove your own pride and what you think you know and be able to hear. Now, 
something you're going to hear things that you don't like or that that are the wrong things but at least you've heard them and now you can go back and and line them up against what you know to be right and wrong and if you're if you're arrogant and too prideful you're never going to hear them in the first place and so I, at west point taught me that early when i was still you know younger than 20 years old i i learned that early and i and i and i attribute that to west point and that's really what i did i i i I was looking at these, what we call a model in my business, they call a model, right? So we're going to, we're going to go develop a, in our example that we used earlier, we're going to develop a, a $50 million deal, right? So you have a, you, you find a piece of land and between the way it looks now and having an open and operating leased up multifamily development between now and then is $50 million and execution on construction and lease up. That's it. So we build a model in Excel that helps us do that. That one, here's my construction budget. Here's my sources and uses of funds. And then two, here's the stabilized budget. Does it make sense? Are we going to spend $50 million on something that's not going to spin off enough net operating income to make it worth anything, right? I mean, we're not going to go spend $50 million to have a annual net in, net operating income at a thousand bucks. So I've got to, I've got to model that. I've got to model the, the, the stabilized budget and say, yes, at the end of the day, rents in this area, people, you know, the demographic in this area can pay this much in rent. And it makes sense for us to spend this money, this amount of money to deliver this product for this demographic or for the people that live here or whatever they are. So, you know, learning what they, where they work, who, who, who are my renters? Who are my, um, why are people going to rent here? So understanding that whole market and where, where those, where those people are and why they're going to spend what they do is really what I spent my, you know, long nights understanding and then understanding the Excel models being it because the Excel model then translates into how I pitch the deal to the bank for the debt equity for raising the money and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I couldn't have done any of that without what I learned. At There's no question. Well, you're blending the art and the science. Because you're the Excel and the math models is part of it, um, but you also have to check the numbers and say, all right, does this make sense? Um, That's right. Do people really live like this? Would I want to live like this? Would I want to live here if I was making this much money? And then the other part, That's like right. you're talking, is you got to sell it. Um, you can be the science all day long, but if you can't sell it and get investors, you're SOL. There's no question, and and we hear that all the time, especially when guys were getting out in our in our different guys were getting out and. They were looking at sales jobs and people said, you know, you don't want to do sales. And you hear this all the time, but you really are. I don't care what you do. When you put when you put an idea together, whether you're selling a product or whatever, you're going to sell to somebody. It may it may be the guy that's going to give you the the all the big bucks to make your company work. But you're going to you've got to pitch a vision. And we do this in the army. If people don't realize, but we you do it in the army. If, if I have an idea, I can't just walk into my commander's office and be like, hey, sir, this is what we're going to do. I've got to show him. I've got to put the pitch together. This is what I've learned. This is what I'm seeing out there. This is what I'm thinking. And here's the here's the here's what we're going to accomplish if we do it. Tell me how I need to improve, sir or ma'am. Right. A lot of people don't realize that that's really where the art is, like you talked about. I, I understand my my business, but how do I get others to understand it? Because I can't do this by myself. And so um, we're just running a little short on time. You've been sure, very yeah, successful, uh, and you you left uh, the Wiseman Group and, and moved on, uh, and then now you're in a pretty good spot. Um, looking back, what what helped you get where you're at? Um, there were there were I had I had some great mentors in the in the real estate business. I, I've talked about it at length, but it, it all starts with with my the lessons I learned at West Point. And to be quite honest. I don't think I would have ever learned those lessons at West Point if I hadn't gotten past those initial stages that we talked about early on in this in this in this talk, and uh, those initial pressures, the initial shock of being there, being a plebe. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done any of that. I couldn't have got it at the point to where I could learn and be humble without without close close friends who support you and who go through do through trials with you. So I think ultimately that's the genesis of it, because you know you can jump into that situation and I tell you. Without, without, without our classmates, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have lasted there and I wouldn't have learned what I had to learn. And it had been, you know, 
all wrapped up in myself and thinking I knew how to do everything and, and just failing all the time. And, and, and I think that's, that's really at the core of what it is. Um, I've, I've, I've been able to keep a strong faith. Um, and I, th- I, I think, um, my, my Christian faith has, has helped with where I am now. And then I've had some great mentors and I've sought out mentors, but again, that's really a, a, a secondary reaction to what I've learned at West Point. We all know that. I mean, we, we all know searching out mentors, mentors is something that we learn at, at, at school at West Point. So I, I would attribute it to the, a, a conglomeration of those things, if that makes sense. It does. Um, and just for closing comments, um, what would you want to say if, you, uh, if you're talking to the class right now? Um, if I'm talking to our class right now? Yeah. Um, I'm really proud of you. I, I, I count myself blessed. I, in fact, when I talk to my, my partners, my senior partner, um, others around Houston that are in, in, uh, in the business with me that a lot of them have no, no history or interaction with the military or West Point. Um, I can tell you that I, it's proud bragging on, on my classmates and what they do. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in a month I pull up some of you guys' web or, or Facebook pages and be like, look at this guy or look at this girl. Look what they're doing. Look what they're doing with their life or hearing hearing stuff in the news. I forward news articles all the time to my partners. Like, hey, this is my classmate. I have this person. So I'm, I'm really proud of, of, of the class that I came from, if that makes sense. It does. Um, what, our, what our class has done is impressive. And uh, I appreciate you sharing today, Randy. Yeah. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. Good luck. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.